Speaking of athletes, here he is. Uh, this is Dave, uh, David Beckham, and it's what he looked like in 2002. 2002 was a big year for David Beckham because... Well, every year is a big year for David Beckham, isn't it? And he just lives one of those lives. 2002 was a big year for David Beckham because he captained the England football team into the World Cup. In 2002, we had already gone around uh, 40 years, coming up for 40 years, without winning the World Cup. It was almost 40 years of football in shame. On our great nation. But David Beckham, that's what he looked like. He was young. He was athletic. He played in the World Cup before. Now he was captain. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. We all knew, those of you who are old enough to remember 2002, we all knew that things were going to be different this time round. Because no one, no footballer on earth could stand in the way of somebody who looked that good. I remember actually driving through London as David led the England team out for their first match, you know, in the, uh, in the group stage. And as uh, the, the Five Live commentary went out, David Beckham strode on to the field with the team behind him. And the, uh, and the commentary actually said, the Messiah enters the arena. The Messiah. England had been waiting. As I say, 40 years of football in shame was about to come to an end as David led us to an ultimate victory, the Messiah. It was a good use of the term. Tragically, that's not the way things turned out. For those of you who care about football at all, it was the quarterfinals. We made it out of the group stages, which is some going for England, and uh, we made it into the quarterfinals. But in the quarterfinals, we met. Brazil. And Brazil wiped us out and went on to win that World Cup again, like they seem to every other time. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. That was what Palm Sunday was all about. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. We're going to look at the issue of false stories this morning, as Dave said. We live in a world where the issue of terrorism and gangs is hardly ever out of the news. In South London, just at the moment, uh, over the last month, the gang issue has got, on some of the estates around here, has got almost completely out of control. As Dave said, in some of the areas where Oasis works around London, particularly in Haringey and Enfield, the issue of gangs is almost completely out of control. The project that we run in St. Thomas's Hospital, Tom Isaac at Leeds, Cam's involved in, others are involved in, where we work with kids who end up drunk in A&E, uh, ED, drunk and drugged and stabbed, and etc., etc., I, you, many of you know, we replicate now in what's called the North Middlesex Hospital, which is the hospital on the border of Enfield and Haringey, where we've got some schools where the problem is absolutely huge. The problem of buying into bad stories, the problem of terrorism, 
That problem is not, an old, uh, is not a new story. It's an old story. And it's really what Palm Sunday is all about. It's what that reading we've heard is all about. We concern, we consign chunks of the Bible to history, most of it to history, and we say, oh, what a quaint story. Jesus comes into town on a donkey and they lay palm leaves in front of him and now we celebrate it and we call it Palm Sunday and they sing Hosanna. What a lovely word that is. Why don't we put it in a few worship songs? So we did it and we sang Hosanna to the son of David at the beginning of this service. But the reality of all of this can be definitely, almost completely lost from us. The original terrorists in history, well perhaps not the original terrorists, but the best known terrorist gang in all history feature in this story. They are the best known terrorist gang in all history because they have given their name to fanaticism and you all know it. They are, of course, the zealots. The word zealot has entered our language. When you say that someone's a zealot, you mean they're fanatical, you mean that they're radical, you mean that they won't give up, you mean they'll do anything to achieve their goal. The zealots are the people that feature in the story of Palm Sunday. They were originally members of an ancient Jewish sect aiming at a world Jewish theocracy. Ha ha! Where have you heard that term recently in connection to ISIS? And resisting the Romans until AD 70. Some of Jesus' disciples were zealots. Peter was a zealot. Zealots, otherwise known as the dagger men, we know all about them for the same reasons as we know about more about marriage. If you weren't here when I was talking about marriage and divorce last week, I said that we know lots more about marriage and divorce and what Jesus actually meant and what he was really referring to because of our study of all of the ancient documents that we now have in our possession because of the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, etc., etc., etc. We know a huge amount now about the zealots. The zealots were a group of people, as that definition tells you, that's just out of bog standard dictionary, that definition. That definition tells you that the zealots were a group of people, a large group of people in the Israel that Jesus inhabited that knew, believed the only way out of the slavery that Rome had imposed on them was to run every Roman soldier through. They were terrorists, zealots, fanaticals. They were going to do anything to end the rule of Rome in Israel. And of course, the story that's taken from Good uh, Monday, Thursday, Thursday evening this week as we head through to Easter Sunday next week, the story of Monday, Thursday is the story of how Jesus ends up in the Garden of Gethsemane after he's taken bread and wine and celebrated a Passover meal with his disciples. We're going to get a chance to celebrate a Passover meal. I urge you to be here for this. As we enter into this stuff, we begin to go, ah, it makes a bit more sense now. I know it. Ah, 
okay, this isn't just some fairy story. This actually gives meaning and direction to me today. So they celebrated a Passover meal together, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives, and it was there that Judas had betrayed Jesus, and the temple guard make their way to Jesus, and they try to arrest him, and Peter whips out a sword, and he cuts off the ear of one of the oncoming guards. Why does he do that? Because he's a zealot. He's a zealot. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah. The term Messiah does not mean God. Christians now get it all conflated for very good reasons, by the way, I'm not knocking it. And we worship Jesus as the Messiah. And when we use the word Messiah, we think it means God. So when I told you that the commentator said about David Beckham, here comes the Messiah, we go, oh, that's a a little bit blasphemous, isn't it? But the term Messiah in Israel, when Jesus was around, simply meant the leader of the zealots. The leader of the caliphate, the theocracy that would kick the Romans out for good. And every Jewish lad prayed that he would be the Messiah. They did. Just like every English lad who likes football prays that he will become a professional footballer and captain England to glory in some future World Cup. That's what the Messiah was. It simply meant the liberator, the one who will come to liberate our country. And the zealots were the group of people about whom we know lots now who were determined that this should come about. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, people gather and they throw palm branches in his way. Why? You can find out about all of this. You can check out everything I'm saying. You know, absolutely everything. Very easily on the internet. They threw palms in his way because, as you probably know, in the ancient Greek games, a victor was always given palm leaves to carry. It was a sign and a symbol of victory. You can check out pictures with this in, in the National Gallery. But we, we look at all this stuff and we kind of don't see it. A palm was a sign of victory. And so as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the rumor's gone round that he's the Messiah. People are following him. Everybody's following him. And the crowds realize that he's here to take on the Romans and they throw down the palms, palms of victory, and they sing Hosanna. The word Hosanna simply, well, it's a cry. And it means, save us now, save us now. So imagine that scene. Jerusalem is a tinderbox. The Romans are oppressing the people. The people long for, pray for freedom. They want the Romans out. And Jesus, whom the rumor says is the Messiah, the long-awaited liberator of Israel, rides in on a donkey. They know he's coming. 
and they fling the palms in his way. And they cry, save us, save us, save us now, save us now, which is the word Hosanna. It's a political event. It's highly charged. It's more highly charged than IDS's resignation on Friday night. It really is. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's talking about it. And the question it poses is the question that Dave posed in our prayers. What's your story? What do you buy into? Even when Jesus had died on the cross, risen from the dead, and reappeared to his disciples, if you read the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, check it out, when the disciples are with the risen Jesus, they say, will you at this moment restore the kingdom to Israel? And can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? They've still not given up on this violent revolution because they are zealots. The original terrorist group that's given its name to terrorism around the world are the zealots. Zealots. To switch centuries, Dostoevsky said this, while nothing is easier to denounce the evildoer, nothing is more difficult than to understand them. Jesus understood. Jesus understood what his disciples wanted. He understood what they were about. You would have heard me on a different Easter tell a different story about Judas. I think that Christians are very confused about Judas altogether um, because it doesn't make sense. You know, Judas betrays Jesus. We're saved because Jesus died. Follow my logic. It goes, we're saved because Jesus died on the cross for us. Because he died on the cross for us, uh, we are set free. Yeah? Uh, If he hadn't died, our sins couldn't have been forgiven. Yeah? Then it goes, well, if... Judas hadn't have betrayed him, he wouldn't have died. Yeah? So Judas betrayed Jesus. So we all hate Judas because he's such a terrible bloke. But of course, unless he'd done what he did, we wouldn't be here today celebrating the cross. So it's all a load of nonsense really, isn't it? But it's one of those loads of nonsense that we all believe because we never think about these things. I think Judas was a good man. I don't think the Bible presents him as a bad man. But I think that Judas was a misguided man. He was, in actual fact, if you read, a zealot. And he believed that Jesus was the Messiah who was going to rid Israel of the Roman army. And he backed Jesus. And we know he'd spent three years following him. He'd given up everything to follow Jesus. He loved Jesus. Jesus was his hero. And he'd been trying to nudge and push Jesus into action. And now at last, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And everyone's waving palms at him and putting them on the ground. And they're cheering, save us, Lord, save us, Lord. Here comes the Lord who will save us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hosanna, Hosanna. And 
Judas, like the others, they're all excited. And Jesus strides straight up to the temple. You know in the story, that also happens this week. And he goes in, and they're selling loads of stuff in there, and they're ripping the people off. That's the point. Not that they're selling things. They're ripping the people off. They're ripping the people off. And Jesus turns over the uh, tables of the money changers. The other thing they were doing is stopping women and children and disabled people entering. That's what they did. No women, no children, no disabled people got in. They were like the turnstile keepers. And Jesus creates confusion and the story says, and the children and the lame came to him in the temple. It was the first time they'd ever got in. And with all that happening, Judas thinks, yeah, this is it. This is really it. It's going to happen. If you and we had time to read through the ancient texts, which you can, they're in your Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, you'd know that the Messiah, it's prophesied, will come and reclaim the temple and then turn to the palace and depose the Romans or the Greeks or whoever was in power and lording it over people at that time. But instead of doing that, Jesus turns the wrong way and he goes to stay with his friends in a village called Bethany. And Judas can't believe it. Why doesn't he believe in himself? All Jerusalem will follow him. And so he goes to the priests and he does a deal and he gets 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus but he knows Jesus is the Messiah and he knows Messiahs don't die he knows Messiahs conquer so he does the deal to set up the confrontation because he just so wants Jesus to win and Jesus seems to lack confidence So he sets up the deal and he knows he's succeeded. But then they arrest Jesus and as Peter makes the first blow and Judas goes, yeah, game on. Jesus says, put the sword down. You're choosing the wrong way. And they arrest Jesus and they take him away and they torture him. And Judas can't stand it. And if you read the story, he rushes to find the priests again. And he tries to undo the deal because he suddenly realizes it's going wrong. And he's put his leader in danger. But the priests won't do the deal and they throw the, the silver on the ground. And Jesus, Judas goes outside and he hangs himself. Why does he hang himself if he's just betrayed Jesus, which was his plan? Why would he do it? Why do you betray someone if you've just got rid of them and you've got your 30 bits of silver? He hangs himself because he wakes up too late to the fact that when Jesus talks about liberation, it's a different type of thing. Makes a lot more sense, doesn't it, than all the gobbledygook. This is George Bush. I guess you knew that. <laughs> it's the moment that he was informed of the um, uh, um, the, um, the twin towers coming down in two thousand and one. He was in a school, 
and he's talking, it's a primary school, and his advisor tells him that the Twin Towers have been attacked. It was September the 11th, 2001. Nine days later, he stands up and he addresses the joint houses. You know, America has the same system as us, kind of twin system, you know, in, that, in the Capitol building. At one end, it's the House of Representatives, and the other end, it's the Senate, the two houses of American Parliament. And he addresses the two houses, the joint, joint thing. And he declares this nine days later. Our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. And we, it will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. And with us, the Brits, in the, a month later, we invade Afghanistan uh, because that's uh, where we think, um, we, we think Al-Qaeda is based um, and... Uh, in February, uh, at the State of the Nation, two months later, Bush stands up and he says, the American flag flies again over our embassy in Kabul. Terrorists who once occupied Afghanistan now occupy cells in Guantanamo Bay. And if you ever watch the recording, it's an amazing thing. Everybody stands up and they cheer and they holler and they shout, yeah, we've done it. Palm Sunday, all over again. The zealots, we're crush people. And no one stops, oh, sorry. And no one stops to listen to these words. While nothing is easier than to denounce the evildoer, nothing is more difficult than to understand them. But the thing is, it doesn't work. In 2001, according to Tony Blair, there were around 300 known terrorists in the world, Islamic terrorists. There were about 300. According to Tony Blair, last year, there were at least 31,000 in Iraq and Syria alone. And there were terrorist attacks. There were more terrorist attacks last year than there were days of the year. There were 386 terrorist attacks during the course of last year. These are three girls. This is North London. These are pictures of them entering Gatwick. Because last half term, just over a year ago, February, these three girls, straight A students at Bethnal Green Academy, they told their mums they were going to Stratford for the day on half term, you know, down to what's West, Westfield. But they didn't turn up at Westfield. They boarded a plane for Turkey, and they're now part of ISIS and training for terror attacks. They're 16. What makes three normal girls who are straight A students, they are straight A students, and many others like them, leave the security of home for ISIS and Syria? Ten a week, we're told by the police, leave the UK average. But it's not those that go, they add. It's all those who are radicalized and stay. Don't go anywhere. They're just sat in a bedroom on a laptop. They're planning. 
This is Mohammed uh, uh, um, Khan. Mohammed Khan, Sadiq Khan, Mohammed Sadiq Khan um, was a primary teacher in uh, Yorkshire. Everybody who works with him worked with him, said he's a lovely guy. In actual fact, we've got some staff in Oasis who did work with him in other schools. They all said he was a lovely, meek guy. This is what he wrote before he masterminded the bombing of the buses, the bus and the tube. Uh, in London in 2005. I and thousands like me have forsaken everything for what we believe. Your democratically elected governments uh, continuously perpetuate atrocities against my people all over the world and your support makes you directly responsible just as I am directly responsible for protecting and avenging my Muslim brothers and sisters. Until we feel security, you will be our targets. Until you stop the bombing, gassing and the oppression and torture of my people, we will not stop this fight. We are at war and I am a soldier, a zealot. Terrorism has always been with us. And it's all about believing in a story and that story becoming motivated around revenge in the end. It's about revenge. The only way I can deal with pain is revenge. That was Judas. That was Peter. That was the zealots. That's what a zealot is. This is a zealot talking. And our government, as you know, has launched Prevent. We've got to prevent this happening. And this guy works in London. He's called Andrew Silk, actually. He's a professor in anti-terrorism. He said this. If you talk to terrorists themselves, they portray themselves as altruists. They're doing this out of love for someone else, for a higher cause, a higher calling. Exactly what Judas was doing. Exactly what Peter was doing exactly what the original zealots were doing. They see themselves as fighting on behalf of others, whether it's the IRA, or he could have added, or the original zealots in the Palm Sunday story. Or if it's the Islamic State, recognizing the altruistic dimension of terrorism is essential to fully understanding and ultimately moderating it. Like Dave says, that also applies, um, that also applies to gangs. ISIS is a gang. The Zealots were a gang. The world's full of gangs. And the one uniting factor all these gangs have is they believe in revenge. Look at that just for a moment. I'll say nothing. Just read it. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because we never stop to think like that. The number of people I talk to, because we... Um, it, we, have, uh, we employ many hundreds of Muslims. I don't know if you know that. Oasis does. And we have many thousands and thousands of Muslim families in our schools. And the number of people I talk to, when they see a veiled Muslim woman, they say, how oppressive that a woman has to dress like that. How oppressive. What a terrible male-dominated society that she can't just strip off. But I've spoken with many Muslim women who say when they see somebody toddling down the road on shoes that they can hardly walk on, with wearing a bra with their bust pumped up, they say, 
How oppressive that women in your society have to be like that. Look at the magazines on your shelves, in your bookstores. Where's the value in that? Where is the value in that? By the way, two monks wandering down a road. One is young, one is old. And as they wander down the road, they see the most beautiful young woman. And ahead of them, there's a river. And the bridge is broken, and she can't get across. So the two monks wander towards her, and she is a good-looking young woman. And she says, I'm stuck, I can't get across the river. And the old monk picks her up and walks into the river and gently carries her all the way across the river and puts her safely on the other side. Then he returns to his younger friend and they continue on their journey. And after a few minutes, the younger monk, the younger man, says to the older monk, you shouldn't have done that, you know. You shouldn't have done that. And the older monk says, why? And the younger monk says, because to pick that woman up, that beautiful woman, that sexual woman like that, and carry her across the river and put her down like that, all sorts of temptations could have come across you. All sorts of things could have gone wrong. And the old monk said, ah, I picked up the woman, carried her across the river, and I put her down. Your problem is, you never picked up the woman, but you're still carrying her. What's happened is lots has got lost in translation. Here's a copy of the Quran. A little bit of information you may or may not know. The two words you're looking at are the two most holy words in Islam. Whether you're, um, you know, uh, uh, whether you're Sunni or Shia, whether you're moderate, liberal, fanatical, whatever you are, I mean, these two words are like father and son, as in Godhead, or, or Trinity and Holy Spirit. Do you know? They really are. Okay? This is what they are. Tawheed, now, these are transliterated from Aramaic. So, your Tawheed is sometimes pronounced, uh, written in English, T-A-W-I-H-I-D, various different ways. Tawheed and Umar. Okay. Every Muslim in the world, whatever their outlook, it's like saying, it's like saying Mary to a Christian. Right? Everyone knows what these two words are about. Tawheed is, it means the oneness of God. Actually, there's nothing in these two words that any good Christian would disagree with. Tawheed means God is one and he's the God of everything. Everything. There's nothing that's not his. Remember what the psalm says? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This is that same, the oneness of God. Uh, Uma means the oneness of the people who follow God, the Uma, the great cloud of people who follow God, sometimes translated as the Muslim nation, the oneness of all Muslim people. 
So, let's take another word. People don't know those two words. They're good words. They're great words. The oneness of all the people, the Uma, talks about community and responsibility and accountability and honor and standing up for one another and not letting somebody else's thing go past without working for them. But we've never heard those words, but they are the two most important. Here's one that everyone's heard. Jihad. So jihadist is a terrorist. They are a zealot. They're out to get you. Jihadism is the worst. Jihad simply means um, spiritual discipline. So in Christianity, the rule of Benedict, St. Benedict, you know, to give and to pray and to serve. Jihad is about the inner spiritual struggle to give, to pray, and to serve. But it's been radicalized and it's been used by fundamentalists in a really wrong way. I mean, that never happens in Christianity, does it? Thankfully. That was a joke. (laughs) Madrasa. Madrasa. Oh, they're terrible schools that brainwash people. Madrasa basically means after school club. I've got a friend who's Muslim. um, uh, I I hope she'd come and uh, speak one one day. She's, She's wonderful. And and she went to a madrasa. She grew up in this country. She went to a madrasa after school every day. Churches run after school clubs. Madrasas are those. It just means a place of education. But it gets taken and radicalized and used wrongly. Caliphate, you know, that's because if you believe in Uma, that everything's one, and God is the God of everything, you believe that there isn't any difference between the civic and the religious, don't you? You believe the whole thing goes together. I guess that's what we believe, that our lives not compartmentalized. And a caliph is a leader of the whole of society, and a caliphate is when you put everything together. We have one in Christianity. It's called the Vatican City, where the pope is, is, is leader of the civil and the religious. That is a caliphate. It's just we don't call it a caliphate because we're not Muslims. But this term has been taken and twisted. Sharia. Uh, we all know that's when you get your hands chopped off for all sorts of things. I have got to know someone who is a Sharia, Sharia court judge in Lebanon. In fact, he's invited me to go and spend time with him. Sharia is simply the holistic, integrated understanding of life. So all these terms that we rubbish can actually, and do for most, most Muslims, the vast majority on earth, have wonderful meanings. And you say, no, no, all this can't be true. I'm going to come to a close in a minute. You know, you walk into a, I walked into a pub with a friend, actually. So this is true. I walked into a pub with a friend, and he said, uh, he said, you know, all these, he, this, not so long ago, he said, all these Muslims, you know, they're all kind of fanatical, and, you know, and I said, no, 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 they're not. And he said, yeah, yeah, they are, you know, like uh, Sharia law, it's all about chopping things off. And I said, no, 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 it's not. So a bit later on, we're sitting there with a glass of red wine, and I, I said to him, hey, look around. I said, um, the subject had changed by then. So I said, look around. I said, what do you, we were talking about the church. So um, I said, what do you think the average person in this bar thinks about Christians? So this is what he said. 
He said, well, you know, that's the problem, isn't it? They get it all out the Daily Mail. He said, they all believe we think the world was created in six days flat. They all think that we believe that the world was created in six days flat by God and that all biology is wrong. But they all believe that we don't believe in biology or maths or evolution. We just believe the world was made in six days flat. They all believe we're against women. They all believe we're against gay people. They all believe, and he went on this long list. They all believe we think we're going to heaven and they're all going to die. They all believe, he said, that we believe that we're going to go to heaven soon. They all believe that we want to go to heaven soon. We all believe, he said, that that everybody else is going to hell, including most people from other churches. And then he said, it's all Daily Mirror tabloid stuff. I said, don't you think we've all got a Daily Mirror tabloid version of all of this? And that's the problem for us. Remember back to Dostoevsky, we've got to understand our message gets twisted. So it was that on this Palm Sunday, the message of Jesus was taken and twisted. And what those people didn't understand and why they came to betray him over the next few days is because they slowly woke up to the fact that he'd not come with a sword to run everyone through. He'd come with a palm of surrender to lay down his life, to take the blow instead of return it, to live a different way, to set up a new way of being human, a way of being human that was about love your enemy, a way of being human that wasn't about revenge but was about forgiveness, a way of being human that washed people's feet, which is what he'd do a few days on, a way of being human that went to the cross and took the spit and took the shame but didn't fight back. A way of being human that brought life. And this morning, in our contemporary world, we have to choose again. Do we choose the sword? Do we choose in our personal fights and struggles and family lives and jobs to choose the sword, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm going to win, I'm going to be clever and use, outsmart you. Or do we choose the way of the cross, the way of Jesus? That's the choice that those zealots on Palm Sunday got. Is it the sword or the cross? And that's the choice that we have here today and it's the choice that our nation has and it's the choice that the nations of the world have because if we all line up and fight one another well what will be the outcome of that but if we put up the sign of the cross and we say we will serve by surrendering there's a different way forward discover the end of the story next week when Jill's going to talk about the resurrection